Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Work Green, Earn Green. I'm your host, Jay Tipton. In past episodes, we've explored states inside the Rust Belt, the Cotton Belt, and the Sun Belt, but we've yet to dig into one of the U.S.'s other belts, the Corn Belt. Well, that is finally going to change because on this episode, we are heading to Iowa. Iowa is one of the OG founding members of the Corn Belt, dating back to the 19th century. Now fast forward to today, and Iowa is the number one producer of corn in the country, a title it's held for many generations. But hundreds of years of continual agriculture can't be great for the soil that grows all that corn, right? Yes, very right. For most of us, soil health might not seem like much of a big deal. After all, it's just dirt. Well, hold it right there because soil is not the same as dirt. It's so much more. In fact, it has many benefits when it comes to growing, well, anything really. I just wrapped up the second semester of my master's program, and one of the courses I had this term was called biomonitoring. And you know what we learned about? You probably guessed it, soil. And one of the many things I learned is that quality soil contains microorganisms that provide a nutritious base that plants need to grow. It also helps with water retention, heat reduction, carbon sequestration, and many other benefits. But if the soil loses its top-notch quality, all of those benefits go out the window. And that has a big impact on agriculture. So let's circle back to Iowa, where agriculture and farming are legacy practices, not to mention major contributors to the economy and local workforce. So I'm going to talk to people around the state to see how they are addressing soil challenges and how tackling those challenges can lead to green jobs. And while we're on the subject of legacy, I decided to brush up on my Midwestern history by paying a visit to Living History Farms a 500-acre open-air museum in Urbandale, Iowa. Our mission here at Living History Farms is really to connect people to the stories of rural heritage in Iowa. And that means helping people understand how farming has developed over time, how important a part it has played in Iowa's economy. That was Elizabeth Cedrill, Living History's Marketing and Communications Director. For nearly 200 years, food production has been one of the largest sectors in the state, but while these farms may be contributing billions to the local economy, their industrial processes are putting the future viability of Iowa's farmlands at risk. Between 1850 and 1900, two really important things happened that impacted farming, the Industrial Revolution and the arrival of the Transcontinental Railroad. So now you're seeing not only a much bigger farm, but we're using machinery. So the farms are pulling in much, much larger volumes of crops. While technology has helped to maximize production, it has also led to an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, which is already impacting Iowa's ability to grow crops. The days of a gentle drizzle for a day or two seem to be largely a thing of the past. Our rain now comes in giant torrents and leaves puddles in the fields for days. So we're weeks behind on putting crops in the ground because it's been too wet and it's been too cold. So what's the solution here? We can't just take from the land. It is also our responsibility to preserve the land if we want it to be here for future generations. Even if you live in a place where you don't drive by fields every day, they impact how you live and how we treat the land impacts our own subsistence. Now that call to action sounds like it would require some green jobs. And what better place to start then with the people in the field, 
Iowa's farmers. Now, soil is one of those things that everybody knows what it is, but nobody really understands what it is. And too often it gets treated like dirt. That was John Gilbert of Gibraltar Farms, an integrated crop and livestock farm that has been in John's family since 1870. And he just hit the nail on the head. We can't treat soil like dirt. Dirt is what I get on my clothes whenever I'm hiking. But soil, soil is made up of minerals, nutrients, and microbes that have been decomposing since glaciers crushed the bedrock over 10,000 years ago. Why we have such fertile soil here is because this primarily was tall grass prairie. And as the grass grew tall, the roots went deep. And so it's that combination of biomass and biology that created the wonder we have here. But the conventional wisdom is that we've lost about half our topsoil since it was first broken. Native prairie soil would run 8 to 10 percent organic matter. Soils in Iowa today are hard-pressed to have 1 to 2 percent. Yikes! A 50 percent drop in topsoil? That is huge. But what does degrading soil quality have to do with climate change? For that organic matter to leave, it got converted to CO2. And so it's been a big contributor to the global warming problem that we have. And so a lot of the efforts that we're looking at today are trying to figure out how do we return some of that uh, CO2 into organic matter and make it stable enough to stay in the soil. Ah, finally some good news. All hope is not lost because there are ways to get carbon dioxide back into the ground. We just got to do it. And John tells me it can be done by following six steps. The first one's a little esoteric, but they want you to understand your soil and your hydrology. The second step is to always keep the soil protected. The third step is don't till it. The fourth step is to use cover crops. Fifth step is to have more diverse crops. And the last step is to graze livestock. All right. So if it's as straightforward as following these steps, why doesn't every farm in Iowa practice them? You have to remember north of half of Iowa land is rented. I think the last number I saw was around 56%. But that means that the person who is farming it has basically no ownership interest in the land. They're very much like when you pay for a motel room or a rental car. And when was the last time you washed your rental car before you took it back? That's kind of the same attitude a lot of people have when they rent land. And our objective is to make money. And so we need as much production as possible. And so stewardship is basically collateral damage. While I understand that it is easy not to feel ownership for something you are renting, it is a true shame because the land could use some help. And combining stewardship with making money would have tremendous benefits on more than just the bank account. With 30 million acres of farmland losing organic matter, we're not only kicking tons of CO2 up into the atmosphere, but also jeopardizing the ability for these farms to continue bearing fruit, or corn in this case. But again, there's hope to be found in history. If Iowa soy was able to store five to 10 times the amount of organic matter it holds today, it stands to reason that it can do it once more. After all, history does repeat itself, right? In order to find out, you'll have to stick around after the break when I'll be speaking to a few farmers who are banking on Iowa's rural roots. Don't go away. The way we work and the skills we need to do our jobs are changing fast. What do you need to know to keep up? And how do we as a society ensure everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in today's workforce? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. 
Join me each week on the Work in Progress podcast as I go one-on-one with the innovators and decision makers who are helping us navigate our way through these challenges. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard about how the industrialization of the Corn Belt has depleted its soil quality and is contributing to global warming. And we also heard about the six steps farmers can take to help fix the situation. But now, I want to break it down step by step to see which ones can lead to earning some green. Let's start with step number one, learning about the soil. And to learn, we should probably go to school. So what better place to start than Iowa State University? I spoke to Rick Cruz, an agronomy professor and the director of the Iowa Water Center. He explained the importance of Iowa's soil composition. Iowa, at one time, was known for its black gold, so to speak, not oil, but the black soil that covered the surface in Iowa. The soil particles are coated with organic matter that decomposes from roots that die, from bacteria, from plant stems that die. That's what makes soils black. As that organic matter decomposes, it releases nutrients crops can use. So in the degraded soil, missing that reservoir, it really reduces that soil's capacity to help the crops during stress periods. That would explain why farmers are constantly fertilizing and spraying fields with chemicals, which are practices that aren't exactly eco-friendly. As the demand across the globe increases for food, and areas that cannot produce soil that's necessary, crop prices increase, as we see right now. And what do farmers do? They farm harder. Ah, and there we have the problem. As the population continues to swell, farmers have to ramp up production to meet demand. But the harder they farm, the more they deplete the soil. And the more depleted the soil gets, the harder it becomes to grow crops. It's a very real catch-22. And even though many farmers understand the importance of soil health, the financial incentive for them to do step two, which is protect it, isn't as obvious. One of the challenges with soils is there is no economic return directly for work that you do. It's not like putting fruit in boxes that you can pay hourly for doing. So getting paid is either through a taxpayer role or in the case where you're a consultant. Now, hang on a sec, Rick. It sounds like you may have just stumbled onto a way for listeners to turn their knowledge of the land into a job opportunity. Did I hear you mention consulting? Crop consultant deal with soils immensely, testing soil health, soil productivity, and farmers hire them and receive positive results from that job position. You've got people that work in research. Those are typically government jobs. The government jobs would be natural resources, conservation services, and office, typically in each county. And these people work with farmers to conserve their soil and water resources. And I will say, people that graduate from the Department of Agronomy with bachelor's degrees virtually all have job opportunities. Okay, but what about farmers who do want to protect their soil? Is it as simple as moving on to step number three? No longer tilling. No-till is an option. Another big one, probably the biggest one right now of greatest interest is cover crops. Ah, yes. Step number four, planting cover crops. But what exactly are cover crops? Well, it's actually pretty self-explanatory. Cover crops are plants grown to literally cover the ground and protect it during the off-season when row crops like corn and soybeans aren't being grown. But unlike cash crops, cover crops aren't grown to be sold. And that made me wonder if there was any way to make money here. 
As it turns out, the answer is yes. The Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship are subsidizing farmers' initial attempts at growing cover crops, somewhere between $20 and $40 per acre. Even with all those efforts, we still have only about 4% or less of the area that's having cover crops as part of their system. 4% is a start, but it sounds like Iowa farmers have got a lot more ground to cover, pun intended. And so do we as we move right along to step number five, diversifying crops. And one way to do that is to bring back the plants of Iowa's past. Allow me to introduce you to prairie strips. Here in Iowa, we hold the distinction of being the most altered state in the nation. If you go back about 200 years, 85% of the state was covered in prairie. We have less than one-tenth of one percent of that initial cover left. So there's been a significant reduction in the diversification of crops. And what we're talking about planting is replicating the native prairie that would have had something on the order of three to 400 different species. That was Tim Youngquist, an agriculture specialist and farmer liaison with the STRIPS program at Iowa State University. STRIPS is an acronym that stands for Science-Based Trials of Row Crops Integrated with Prairie Strips. That's a very big academic mouthful but essentially what it means is just taking small amounts of prairie and strategically integrating those into row crop fields and then measuring the effects on nutrient movement, soil retention, water infiltration, pollinator habitats, pesticide movement, all these different things. In practice, prairie strips are narrow strips of farmland earmarked for growing native plant species. And if you haven't seen one before, I highly suggest doing a quick internet search because they are beautiful. And when integrated into a row crop system, they act as a sponge, slowing soil and nutrient runoff. All we're trying to do is just put what was the formerly dominant ground cover in the state back into the landscape. We're not reinventing anything. Like the simplicity of it is wonderful. But exactly how much farmland would growers have to give up in order to integrate this method into their practice? What we found was that 10% was the way that you could get what we call disproportionate benefits. Again, taking out the 10% of land is a significant investment for people to do that. But by taking out that 10%, you can see dramatic increases in the overall amount of nutrients that you're paying for to fertilize your crops, and then also creating more habitat for grassland birds, which have been in precipitous decline for about the last 50 years. And then also a full cadre of the native pollinators, including wild bees and butterflies. Well, to a nature lover like myself, that sounds like a pretty promising proposal. And if you're wondering just how widespread this practice could become, Iowa is home to 85,000 farms, which in order to reach scale could call for thousands of new jobs. We need a lot of different people learning about how to install correctly there needs to be a small army of people putting these things on the landscape. But like any population, there's a sliding scale when it comes to people's environmental interests. So how can farmers who want to grow on every last square inch of land be convinced to install these conservation zones? We're at this interesting juncture now with so much precision agricultural data that allows us to really look at every spot on the field. There are acres on nearly every farm here in Iowa that are not hitting that break-even point. So you're paying for expensive diesel fuel, you're paying for expensive seed, you're paying for all these expensive fertilizers, all this stuff, and you may be not even making your money back and you might be losing significant amounts of money. 
And that's where you can plant less corn and make more money. More money is good, but I was curious how they could make it. Well, the STRIPS program secured some financial backing for farmers willing to repurpose some rows. We were able to write a practice code for prairie strips called CP43 that was introduced in the 2018 Farm Bill. So now farmers and landowners could use prairie strips in their fields and be paid an annual rental payment from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But what about the cost of implementation? If you were to enroll in the CP43 program, you actually pay zero out-of-pocket cost up front. And I believe with a couple incentive payments and things like that, it ends up being on the order of about 110%. So you get actually a little bit on top of that paid for. Tim, my man, that's a pretty solid deal. And hats off to the STRIPS program for ensuring that renters can earn green for taking better care of the land. Now, if only I could find a way for hotels to pay me for making the bed before I leave. But for those who don't work directly on farms, but have an interest in biodiversity, for example, what kind of career opportunities are available with a group like STRIPS? STRIPS is an interdisciplinary research team made up of agronomists, ag engineers, economists, sociologists, natural resource ecologists. I mean, there's probably about six or eight different disciplines that are represented on the team. And then that fans out to undergraduates, graduate students, PhDs, postdocs, all these people that are doing various aspects of research. So there's a lot of different students that are researching various things that then are going to take those skills forward and be able to turn that into a career path. All right, so it seems like studying soil health has a number of different career paths associated with it. And paths is the perfect segue to our sixth and final step to restore soil health, livestock grazing. Hmm, but what does livestock have to do with soil? With livestock, you don't need herbicides to spray your weeds and your brush, and you don't need a fertilizer because they're a fertilizing machine. That was Adam Ledvina of the Iowa Kiko Goats and Blue Collar Goatscaping, which is a prescribed grazing service that allows farmers to reap the benefits of grazing livestock without having to own the animals. But how do farmers benefit from having goats graze their fields? They're seeing their fertilizer costs go down because a lot of the corn stalks, the leftover corn, it's a hard brittle. It's going to take years to decompose. You'd have to turn the soil in order to help that decompose. Well, then you're turning your soil and there's all the negative effects of tillage. So if you can bring in goats, cattle, whatever to eat that leftover crop, then it really speeds up how quick that can turn into fertilizer for crop consumption. Seems like a simple solution, which prompted me to ask, why don't all farmers have a stable of livestock on hand to help clear their fields? Well, originally, when people raise goats, sheep out on the land, you had shepherds and they would stay with their animals all day long, all year, all the time. And that was your livestock. Yeah, shepherding isn't exactly a job I plan on applying for anytime soon. So what has changed to make grazing a more appealing business venture? Electric net fencing has been pretty useful. We can set up the fence pretty quick and easy and go around an area. And we actually are trying out this new product called No Fence. 
it's a virtual fencing technology. So the animals wear a collar, like a pyramid. So the top sides are solar panels that gives it the energy it needs. And then I can pull out my cell phone and draw a polygon around an area where the animals stay contained. They walk up to the virtual line and the collar gives them very high pitched sound. So then they'll turn around and won't leave the area. A job you can perform with your phone? Welcome to 2022, baby. Not just that, but I can open up the app and click on whatever animal I want, and I see where she's at right now as we speak. It sends me a ping every 15 minutes, so I can see where she's been all day, and I can see my satellite view of where this one animal has been this last week. It's a great security feature, and it's really a new era in raising livestock. And this new era is making a centuries-old practice an option for a modern generation of workers. This new tech brings up a lot of job opportunity in the agriculture world, especially in the grazing world. I can't manage 500 head on my own all the time. So it allows a lot of room for people to kind of be your own boss, but also like you can still do contract work through companies like mine, but it really opens up that entrepreneur mindset. And farming in general has really been an entrepreneur's place for forever. Spoken like a true boss. It seems like between all these soil-saving steps, there's plenty of fertile ground for green jobs to grow in Iowa. Yet despite the fact that these farming methods can limit emissions while lining pockets, most are only just beginning to break ground. When we come back after the break, we're gonna hear how these fledgling practices are being seeded, and if sufficiently spread, might make Iowa's black soil worth its weight in gold. Stay tuned. If you're curious about green jobs, good news. Working Nation has even more content for you to dive into. Alicia Clark here, producer of Work Green, Earn Green, and I'm excited to share that a new edition of our video series, I Want That Job, is available now. Each episode features careers that are in high demand and help save the environment, like construction managers, geologists, and some others that may surprise you. So be sure to check them out. Subscribe now to the Working Nation YouTube channel and follow the hashtag GreenJobsNow. And we're back. Before the break, we heard about a number of soil-saving practices that not only reduce the amount of carbon being released into the atmosphere, but also help get some of it back into the ground. And while people like Rick, Tim, and Adam are hustling to get these practices up to scale, the hurdle they all keep coming up against is all about the Benjamin's baby. So the question is, what is the financial incentive for farmers to adopt? Well, as of this past February, an answer has come by the way of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We've set aside a billion dollars and we've created this program that we've called Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. And we've asked farmers, ranchers, forest owners to come to us with projects. That was Robert Bonney, the Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA. If you take a broad look at agriculture in the U.S., agriculture accounts for about 10% of our annual greenhouse gas emissions. And there are opportunities to reduce those emissions to sequester carbon in soil or to, in essence, go negative through improved soil practices and other things that farmers can do. And so what we're trying to do at USDA is to step up and help finance that by paying for the deployment of climate smart practices. So as the nation's largest producer of corn, how big of a role can Iowa play in this national program? 
The fact that agriculture is really part of Iowa's identity is important for the work we're doing just because looking for ways that we can take these sustainable practices and integrate them into existing agricultural systems there. Iowa's been a leader in adoption of soil health practices like conservation tillage that allows you to store more carbon in the soil, cover crops that can store carbon in the soil, and maintain and enhance soil productivity. So this is an opportunity to reward those folks that are already doing it, but also help others transition into those practices. And with a billion dollars on the table, the USDA is definitely putting their money where their mouth is. But is that enough to get them to scale? Scale is ultimately the big question lurking in the background. Part of the idea with the partnerships program is to de-risk this, actually have the government pick up some of the costs in the hope that in future years, more of this can be picked up by the private sector. If we can sort of juice the market in the beginning, there's an opportunity for the private sector to actually take it to scale. One hindrance that we came across in Iowa is a discrepancy between absentee landowners and land-renting farmers who just want to produce as much product as possible. Given that divide, I was curious how this program can incentivize both parties so that these solutions have a shot of actually reaching scale. Thinking about ways that USDA can deploy incentives is important. The program is really designed to work with groups of farmers to spread the costs of participating and make it easier for farmers to participate. But that's not the only tool we have. We have other opportunities to work directly with landowners. Maybe they want to deploy soil health practices or rotational grazing. And we can contract directly with them and share the costs of those activities while we provide technical assistance. So there are lots of ways for different producers, different landowners to play here. And ultimately, what we want to do is create a toolbox with enough variety in it that it can serve the diversity of operations in a way that allows us to reach the scale we need to really make a significant dent in addressing climate change. And if these carbon sequestering practices do reach scale, there is the potential for an economic windfall that extends far beyond agriculture. When folks grow a crop, there's a whole ecosystem of folks that are needed off the farm. Well, climate's going to be no different. There are lots of folks that are needed to measure, monitor, verify, and that's going to create substantial jobs. And because agriculture has both the ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere, it creates some real opportunities. As folks outside of agriculture look for ways to offset their own emissions, they might invest in more agriculture. And to have people who may be interested in either climate-smart commodities or greenhouse gas reductions look at places like Iowa and think it's an important area that they can invest in, that creates more economic opportunities. And just how big are these economic opportunities? Well, the next trillionaires are going to come from the green economy, and carbon is just the first foray into that. That was Sean Penrith, CEO of Gordian Knot Strategies, a consulting company with a focus on natural climate solutions. Sean is in the business of trading climate-smart commodities on what is known as the carbon market. The carbon market is a system where public and private entities can buy and sell units of greenhouse gas emissions as tradable assets. And with the race to get to net zero heating up, the marketplace is poised for explosive growth in the coming years. Carbon markets need to grow 15 times the current size by 2030 and 100 times by 2050 if we're to meet the 1.5 degree centigrade target. And so this is signaling a massive growth or market demand, which is why everyone's getting very excited. 
As we now know, there are many industries outside of agriculture that are looking for ways to offset their emissions. One way of doing that is by buying carbon credits. But what is a credit and how can you earn one? A credit represents one metric ton of avoided or sequestered carbon. The only way you can generate a carbon credit is if you follow an approved carbon methodology. Think of a carbon methodology as a recipe. So if you make a dish, you follow a recipe and you end up with a dish. Same thing with a carbon methodology. You follow the process and you end up with verified carbon credits that you can then sell. Corporations who have net zero targets voluntarily acquire these credits and use them towards their net zero targets. Mm-hmm. So just like $1 represents a specific value, a credit represents a specific amount of carbon. And while the value of a single dollar is pretty simple to determine, it is a little different for carbon. Carbon credits need to be verified to ensure that carbon is actually being captured in the appropriate amount, and that gives the credit its value. That verification process requires a methodology. So to see how all this might play out, I asked Sean to break down a sale for me. So the seller might be the landowner, right? So carbon project developer says, look, I'll develop a carbon project on this land for you. I'll pay for everything and we'll split the revenues. And then those developers will sell those credits to their networks directly. But sometimes landowners will develop the project themselves. They go to a broker and they say, help me place these credits with buyers. Just last year, we saw a 60% jump in volume for carbon credits. And so there's a very strong demand and there's constrained supply, which has pressed prices north. And so many times the landowner and the developer have the luxury of multiple corporates who are interested in buying these credits. So buyers, like a corporation, for example, and the sellers, like a landowner, are just two players at opposite ends of a sale. But there's a whole array of other job opportunities that exist in the middle that are necessary for this market to run. The types of job opportunities include carbon modeling, people that will go in and implement a carbon project, climate finance, and commercialization. It's quite an art to be able to sell these credits to a buyer. So even if you've never set foot on a farm, there's still a way to earn some green on the carbon economy. I can tell you resolutely that people are hiring as fast as they can, and good people are in a very high demand. There's a lot of movement in the industry. People are being attracted to different roles across the spectrum. So lots of shuffling going on. A lot of new folks coming into the space. I mean, we get calls every single week from people that are interested in the career change to venture capitalists who want to set up a fund and invest hundreds of millions of dollars. So lots of capital, a lot of people are staffing up. Sounds very promising, but I want to confirm that brokering deals, verifying credits, and consulting on climate finance can be considered green jobs. So now it's that time of the episode where I use my lifeline and phone a friend. Paula, it's Jay, and I could use your help with a trillion-dollar question. Is it safe to assume that all these jobs associated with the carbon market are considered green? We in the United States have been blessed with this extraordinary ag breadbasket right up and down the Midwest, Iowa being the crowning jewel of those states. And if that ag sector becomes unviable because of environmental deterioration, the ag economy will crash and all the work that goes with it, whether they're big farms, small farms, even the people who've left the state and are just leasing their land because land is money. And in the United States, we undervalue land. But when you start 
valuing the land for what it does over and above growing crops. It's like a gold mine sitting there sequestering carbon dioxide. So I think if the state of Iowa can get into things like carbon markets, which add a premium to these beneficial environmental practices, it's very important for the retention of livelihoods that are based on agriculture. All right. So when you put it like that, I guess it does make sense to consider these carbon market jobs as indirectly green. I think the long story short here is you can't have agricultural livelihoods over the long term, including direct and indirect jobs from the farmer to the carbon accountant. You can't have that chain of work if underneath, literally, the soil is unhealthy. And so ultimately, these things have to start working together. Keep the soil healthy, build up the infrastructure to participate in the carbon market, and make sure the farmers are paid a decent price for their product. And do you think that there's a chance for Iowa to become the Fort Knox of carbon capture if these soil solutions get to scale? This could be a big future for Iowa. Just like Mississippi needs a new economy, Iowa needs a new future. All these states need some new future as the economy shifts away from actual practice into services. And what is the future of work in these economies that have been very hands-on, literally? And one way to look at the future is to say, okay, I'm farming for food, but now I'm also farming for the earth itself. So in the end, it seems that Iowa has the chance to continue holding on to its legacy practice of agriculture while making money and doing some good for our precious planet Earth. Thanks for listening to another episode of Work Green, Earn Green and for roaming around the Iowa prairie with me. Tune in next time as I make a visit back to the state where I was born That's right, this Hoosier host is heading to Indiana. But before you go, do your boy a favor and make sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share, share, share. Finally, don't forget to visit workingnation.com to find additional content on green jobs. Later days. This podcast is produced by Mike Zunick. It's executive produced by Melissa Panzer, Joan Lynch, and Art Bilger. It's written by Jay Tipton and Mike Zunick. Edited and sound mixed by Linz Florin. Assistant editor is Meng Fang Yang. Talent producer is Emily LaLuce. And the associate producer is Diana Iden. Music is by Avocado Junkie. And this podcast is made possible by the Walton Family Foundation.